him going up there with disciples, and they start climbing the mountain, following him, because they still want to see some miracles that he's going to perform, and they want to hear his teaching. And instead of getting frustrated with his thwarted plans, Jesus has compassion on the crowds, and he sees this as an opportunity to test his disciples to see if they are starting to believe in him. And so he turns to one of his disciples named Philip, and he says, there's a lot of people here. Where should we buy bread for these people to eat? And Philip is completely flabbergasted by this question that Jesus asks him. And he's only thinking about what man can do. And so he answers, Jesus, come on. It would take more than a year's or half a year's wages in order for us to buy enough bread for all these people to just have one single bite. There's no way we can feed these people. This is an impossible task. You see, even though Philip had spent a lot of his time with Jesus, he still doubted Jesus and demonstrated a lack of faith here. When he's faced with an impossible situation, he focused more on the obstacle than on who was with him. Although it's easy for us to say, Philip, man, why'd you do that? That's, that's messed up. Why, why didn't you have faith? I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we're faced with really tough obstacles, like struggles with sin, a situation at work that disheartens us, or a family conflict that we just can't seem to work through, we often seem to have that doubt as well as our natural human response and our default. But let's look at the response of a different disciple and see if there's a better way. Another disciple named Andrew speaks up, and he says, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far can that go among so many? Notice here that Andrew does have doubts. He says, how can this feed all these people? It's just five loaves and two fish. But in the midst of his doubt, he still offers Jesus what he has found. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what true faith is. That idea that I don't know how far this will go. I don't know that where this is going to get me. But here's what I have. And the cool thing is that God does great things with that attitude. And we see that throughout Scripture. I mean, Abraham said, I don't know how far this will go, but here's my one son. And God took that one son and made a nation out of him. Moses said, I don't know how far this will go, but here's my staff. And God used that staff to send ten plagues through the nation of, Israel, nation of Egypt and saved the nation of Israel by bringing them through dry ground on the Red Sea. David said, I don't know where this will go, but said, God, I have five stones, and God used them to slay a giant. Daniel said, I don't know how far this will go, but here's my defiant prayers in front of a king who says, pray to only me, the king. And God took that and shut the mouth of the lions Andrew here says, I don't know how far this will go, but here's five loaves 
and two fish. And we read in verse 10 that Jesus said, have the people sit down. There is plenty of grass in that place. And so the people sat down. There were about 5,000 men there, not including women and children. And Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks. And he distributed them among the disciples and said, pass this out to the people and let them eat as much as they want. And he did the same with the fish. When they had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So we see here that using Andrew's step of faith in the middle of his doubt, Jesus performed the miracle of feeding 5,000 men. And he did this to show his divinity. And I think that's why faith is so important for us. Because God is always at work around us. And when we offer ourselves to him in faith, no matter how much we have to offer, it shows that we are willing to join God. And when that happens, God does great things in us and through us. Now, after Jesus performed this miracle, the people were all excited about it. And they wanted to band together and declare Jesus as the king of Israel and have him help them overthrow the Romans. But Jesus knew that this was not his purpose on the earth. And so instead, he withdraws by himself up onto another mountain. And the disciples are kind of left waiting by themselves. And so they decide to get on a boat and go on ahead. And when the wind picked up and the waters started getting really rough, they needed to take down their sails and they started to row, right? And as we all know, you can't just row a boat, right? You have to sing a merry tune while you're rowing your boat. And I think the disciples, as they were rowing the boat, had a tune that went like this. Row, row, row our boat in weather that's extreme. Wearily, 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 wearily. Look, a ghost, let's scream. (laughs) Now, do you ever have those times when you are all alone and you suddenly sense that somebody is there, like watching you? Doesn't that freak you out? Well, when I was a kid, I used to read these books called Goosebumps. I only read a couple of them because my parents weren't the biggest fans of them, and they, waited, they made me wait till I was older, which was probably a smart thing. And so I, I was reading through these books, and there was this one book that I was reading about a wolf, right? And now these books were mostly text, but some of them did have some black and white pictures on them that were just illustrations. And I was reading on this one page, and on the first page about the, the third top of the page, there's an illustration, and it's just this picture of this boy sitting in a room. He's the main character, and he's just sitting in a room, and um, there's, you know, it's just a picture of him sitting in the room, I guess. And as I'm reading through the, the, the chapter about the book, and I get to about three quarters of the way down the second page, and out of the corner of my eye, in the window of the book... The, the illustrator cleverly and subtly put like a picture of a wolf kind of like peering into the window, right? And as I'm reading and I just catch that out of the eye, it totally made me jump. 
and it gave me the, the heebie-jeebies, if you will, and, and completely terrified me. And it's, I think, like I said, it's safe to say that I, I was terrified. Now imagine that you and your friends are out on the middle of the night on a fishing boat, and you're rowing your hearts out, singing that merry tune, and you're just struggling against the waves, and all of a sudden, there is a man on the water, just there. Can you imagine the terror that would have brought them? That would have been just, well, it would have given them the heebie-jeebies. And it's in this state of terrification that the disciples find themselves in. And in that moment, Jesus says the words to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And and this calms the disciples. But I think these words have a really great meaning. Because Jesus, I think he's doing more than just saying, Hey, it's me, Jesus. And we can find that meaning when we look at the words in Greek. In Greek, the words, it is I, is ego me. You can kind of see the different color there in the, in the Greek text. That's ego me. These words literally mean, well, ego means I. And I am, or ego, wow, I can't talk. Ego is I, and me means I am. So it's kind of a redundant Phrase, if you will, because if you were to translate this like in its most literal sense, it would say, I, I am. But in Greek, we don't do that in English, but in Greek they do that to draw emphasis on the I. Jesus is telling us something specific about himself by using this I am statement. And I think this, this ego eimi is a very theologically loaded statement because the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus would have used is called the Septuagint, right? The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but in Jesus' time, they read and wrote in Greek. And so the Septuagint were the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is at the burning bush, And God is telling him, go to Pharaoh and release my people from Pharaoh's control. Moses asked the question, who shall I tell them God sent me? And the words that in the Greek, Septuagint, that God replies with are, ego eimi, I am. So it's the same exact phrase, ego eimi, in in the Greek and or should I say here in John and also in Exodus from the Septuagint, the same words that Jesus is using to describe himself. So when Jesus is using this phrase, it is I, to calm himself, he's drawing attention to the fact that it's, I'm not just a normal person. I am God. I have control over these things. And John, the gospel writer, by including these words, I believe is drawing a connection between the God who rescued the Israelites by bringing them through dry ground, through the sea, is now the God that is with them, walking on the sea, and is there to protect them from the storm. And in the midst of that that chaos and terror that the disciples are facing, the Savior utters those words, and look in verse 21. It says, The boat instantly arrived on shore. 
So Jesus proclaims his deity. The disciples let him in the boat, and boom, they're safe on shore. The next day, all the people who were fed on the other side of the lake, they realize, hey, Jesus is not here. He's escaped. So they decide they want to find Jesus again. And they figure out that he had gone away on boats. And so some other boats arrive there. They drop off their cargo. And all the people are like, hey, can we hitch a ride with you guys to the other side of the sea? So they all hop on boats. And by this time, it's calmed down. So they are using sails and they don't have to sing silly songs. But they get to the other side of the lake. And they finally find Jesus in the synagogue. And when they find him, they have a conversation that is recorded in John chapter 6, verses 25 through 59. Now, this is a really long, and it's kind of a cumbersome passage. And while I was studying them, I was having a kind of a hard time deciphering what it says. And so I decided to paraphrase the conversation. I wrote them out on these, these two sheets of paper, basically, and saying, all right, what did the people say, and what did Jesus say, just in, in common terms so that I can understand it. And I just did that to help me clarify in my brain what Jesus is trying to say to the crowd. And because this passage is long and it's hard to track the line of thought, I thought that maybe today it would be better to do the paraphrased versions of this rather than read like 30 verses of, of the Bible. And I think it'll help you understand it a little better. So I'm going to have Corey come up here and he's going to help me read this. He's going to read the crowd's portion, and I'm going to read verses, or Jesus' part. And this, these are verses, John 6, verses 25 through 59. Um, and hopefully this will help you understand. Oh, you already got it. Nice. Um, kind of the conversation that is going on between Jesus and the crowd here. Hey, Jesus, how did you get here? I don't think you're really looking for me. You guys just want more food. You guys shouldn't work for food that spoils. Instead, you should work for the food that brings eternal life. The Son of Man can give you that food. Well, what do we have to do to earn this bread? You have to believe in me. Jesus, give us a sign. Moses gave our ancestors a sign of manna. Maybe you could give us more bread, then we will believe you. But Moses didn't provide the manna. My father did. And now he's offering you bread that gives eternal life. Jesus, give us this bread. I am the bread of life, sent by the Father to give you life. But you do not believe me. If you believe me, this bread would be yours. Who do you think you are? We know that you are Joseph, the carpenter's son, and now you're claiming to be the son of God? Only those who listen to God will come to me and believe, thus receiving eternal life. I am the bread of life. The manner your grandfathers ate only kept you alive temporarily. And they still died. But if you eat my flesh that I am offering you, you will live forever. How can you give us your flesh to eat? Truly I say to you, the only way you can experience true life is if you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Thanks, Corey. So, as you can see, this conversation is probably one of the most confusing and awkward teachings of Jesus in all of scripture. I mean, it's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, right? That's kind of gross. It gives me the heebie-jeebies, right? Yeah. 
And in fact, a lot of controversies have come from this passage about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And it's always been a passage that I found weird and and never really understood it. But for the sermon, as I studied it more in depth, I looked to see what does the other, what does the rest of the Bible talk about this concept of eating flesh and drinking blood. And I came across something interesting that I think sheds a lot of light on this concept. There's another time that this phrase, Eat my, eating my flesh, is used. And it's in Psalm 27, verse 2. It's a psalm written by King David. When King Saul, I'm sorry, he's, David is not yet the king yet. Saul is still king, and Saul has put a bounty out on David's life. And there are men that are coming to kill David so that they can collect the bounty from Saul. And in that time, David pens these words in Psalm 27, verse 2. When the wicked advance against me to devour, or literally to eat my flesh, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall because God is protecting me. So is David saying here that the men that are chasing after him are cannibals who are wanting to eat him? No, they are men who want to kill him and collect the bounty thus benefiting from David's death. So the phrase, eat my flesh, in this passage, is talking about killing me for personal gain. In other words, benefiting from my death. And we see this even more clearly in 1 Chronicles 11, verse 15 through 19. You see, now David is king, and he had this group of men There were about 30 of them called Mighty Men. And these guys would put some Hollywood characters to shame. Like, I watched the movie Gladiator this weekend, and Maximus, that guy is a ridiculous boss fighter, right? And I think a lot of these Mighty Men would put Maximus to shame. And one of the stories of the Mighty Men is... David and his army, they were sitting in a cave, and David is like, I am so thirsty. I'm just, I feel like I'm going to die. I'm so thirsty. And so three of these mighty men, three of them, are like, all right, let's go. And they're surrounded by a Philistine army. And these three guys go out, and they, by themselves, attack the Philistine army, break into their camp, and go get water from a well, Right? And they bring this water back to David. And David takes it, and he dumps it on the ground. And these men are like, what are you doing? And in verse 19, it says, God forbid that I should do this. He said, should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Because they risked their lives to bring it back, David would not bring it back. Now, David is not literally saying he's going to drink the blood of these men. He is comparing the drinking of blood to their risking of lives. And he's saying, how dare I profit from these men risking their lives for me? He's, he's saying, I should not benefit from their near death. So I think this idea sums up what Jesus is talking about in this passage. When he refers to eating his flesh 
and drinking his blood, he is talking about enjoying the benefits that come from his death. About a month ago, I found out that I'm going to be an uncle, which is really exciting. My sister's brother and his wife are expecting a child around Thanksgiving. And yesterday, they had a gender reveal party. And that's where my wife and the two boys and her mother went. They went down there for the entire weekend. And so I had the house all to myself, which was kind of nice. You see, one of my favorite foods is sauerkraut. And I love making a pork roast with sauerkraut. And you see, the thing is, Carissa hates sauerkraut. She hates the smell of it, and she almost never lets me make it. But now that she's gone, I can do whatever I want. (laughs) So on Friday, I went to the store, and I picked up a three-pound tenderloin pork roast, right? And I bought a 24-ounce bag of red potatoes, and after setting that pork tenderloin in the slow cooker and chopping up all those potatoes, I took 64 ounces of sauerkraut and I laid it on top of that pork tenderloin. And then I took a half a cup of butter, it was, which is one, you know, butter stick. Thank you. I can't think of the word stick. And I sliced that up and I just laid it on top and then I added salt and pepper on top. I closed the lid up and I let that stew for 10 glorious hours. I'm not going to lie. When I woke up in the morning, it was pretty hard to convince myself that this was not an appropriate breakfast food. <laughs> but when lunchtime came, believe me, it was everything that I had been dreaming it was going to be. And this, this meal, this lunch that I had yesterday was a very important part of my day. And it's not just because of the delicious flavors that came from this stew, but because this this food gave me the energy that I needed to go play a round of disc golf. (laughs) It gave me the energy I needed to clean the house. And it gave me the energy that I needed to finish up this year's sermon. You know, you guys know, eating is an extremely important part of life. If we don't eat or drink, we don't live. The thing is, though, in order for me to enjoy the scrumptious celebration of my German heritage, a pig, and yes, a cabbage, had to die. But as a result of their death, I benefited, some, benefited in something that was life-giving, as I ate their flesh, if you will. And this is the idea that Jesus is talking about when he refers to eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that we receive life as a benefit of his death. So then, according to this passage, how do we benefit from Jesus' death? Let's compare a couple verses in this passage from John 6 and see how we can benefit from Jesus' death. First, we see in verses 50 through 51, Jesus says, This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. 
Now in verse 53, he says, Unless you eat this flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then in verse 54, he says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now from this passage, what is the benefit that we get from Jesus' death? Yeah, eternal life. Now, let's also look at some other verses that, to compare that. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. There's something else in here that we do to get eternal life. What is it? Yeah, believe in God. According to these verses, we see these two concepts, eating and drinking, put together with believing. And we see them put together in verse 35 when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So I think Jesus is using a metaphor here when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and at the same time speaking clearly about believing in him. So they refer to the same thing. In summary, it is by placing our trust or believing in Jesus and what he did on the cross that we gain from his death the benefit of eternal life. Does that make sense? All right, good. Now, the problem is this was a really hard message for many of the people that were there listening to him. And in verses 60 through 66, it tells us that many people stopped following Jesus as a result. After all these people desert Jesus, Jesus looks at the 12 disciples who are still there, and he says, what about you guys? Are you going to go too? And Peter replies with this beautiful statement in verses 68 and 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. Now, when Peter is making this statement, I don't think he's just giving Jesus lip service and telling Jesus what he wants to hear. I mean, think about the past 48 48 hours of Peter's life. He saw Jesus multiply five loaves of bread and two fish to feed over 5,000 people. He saw Jesus walking on water and teleport their boat across the sea onto the water and then explain the way of salvation. He isn't speaking from a place of, Jesus, I've heard stories about you, and I intellectually agree with you. He's saying, I have firsthand witnessed the power of your life-giving love, and I want a stronger relationship with you. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that we would hunger for a deeper relationship with the God who died so that sinners like you and me could have eternal life. And not just an afterlife, but a new life now. King David refused to benefit from the men who risked their lives for him. But that is not what Jesus wants us to do with him giving his life for us. 
Jesus greatly desires us to benefit from his death. Lately, I've been listening to a band called Memphis May Fire. And one of their new albums, or on their new album, they have a new song called Speechless. And the lyrics describe what our lives should look like as a result of the gospel. I would like to play the song for you. And as you listen to the lyrics, I want you to be thinking about what Christ has done for you and how your heart is compelled to respond. I love how in that song, he's talking about how he doesn't deserve God's sacrifice at all. 
But when he realizes what God has done for him, it's like falling in love all over again. And I think that's such a beautiful picture of how our response to Christ's sacrifice should be. That we would be madly in love with him and have every desire to follow him with all that we are. We're going to close the message today by celebrating communion. Communion is something that we celebrate here once a month because it reminds us how Jesus died for our benefit.